Well, as we continue on in worship now, we want to uh, focus on God's Word. Uh, we're going to begin an Advent series this week. So for the next four weeks, we're going to um, be focusing on the message of Christmas. We are, however, going to stay in the book of Isaiah as we look at Christmas because Isaiah the prophet had a lot to say about Jesus and Jesus coming. And so we're going to look at the wonder of Christmas from the perspective of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah, probably even more so than us, saw the true wonder of Christmas because he lived in the days before the coming of Messiah. He saw the darkness of humanity, the darkness of the world without Jesus Christ. And so as God gave him a glimpse of the coming of Jesus Christ, he was able to receive that and proclaim that with just a special wonder and a special joy. And so it's my prayer that as we look at Christmas from the perspective of Isaiah over the next four weeks, God will also renew in our hearts just this wonder of Jesus coming into the midst of human darkness and sin in order to save us. And so our two main texts for this morning are going to be from Isaiah 1 and Isaiah 45. Uh, Ryan will come up and read for us from Isaiah 1 verses 2 to 8. That's going to tell us something of the sinful condition that mankind was in before the coming of Jesus. And then in Isaiah 45, we're going to hear how God truly is the only Savior, the only Redeemer, that there was no other avenue of salvation that we had available to us aside from God himself. And so this week we are looking at the need for Christmas because of our sinfulness and because of God only as Savior. After those two texts, we'll also read from Romans chapter 3, Lisa will read from us from there, again reminding us that we had no righteousness before God apart from Jesus Christ. And then finally, Elisa will come up and read for us from Romans 14, reminding us that everyone must one day stand before God. And therefore, we all have a dire need for Jesus Christ. And so my prayer for us as we read these texts and as I preach God's word is that, again, God would impress upon our hearts our own individual need for Jesus Christ and the need that the world around us also has for Jesus Christ as the great Savior. And so would you pray with me now that God would work by his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that now as we read your word, would you open the eyes of our hearts to see beautiful things in your word. Lord, again, we know that of our own account, uh, we don't see anything wonderful in your word. We see only fear and judgment. But Lord, we know that by your spirit, we were able to see also the news of your beauty and of your glory and of your grace and of your truth. Um, and so God, would you help us to receive that now? And God, would you also be with me and be with my mouth as I proclaim your word? God, would you help me to proclaim it with faithfulness and with power? Again, Lord, not because I am good, because I have skill, but because of your spirit at work within me. Um, and so, God, send your spirit to me especially as I proclaim your word and send your spirit to all those who hear to give us faith in those things which we hear. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah 1, verses 2 through 8. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. For the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, 
They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Isaiah 45, verses 15 through 20. Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God who formed the earth and made it, He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together your survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge you carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall To him shall come and be ashamed all who are incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Romans 3, verse 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Romans 14, verses 10 through 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Well, as we enter into this season of Advent, the season of Christmas, 
It truly is a magical time of year, and it doesn't even take a Christian to see that. I think even secular, non-religious people admit that there is something special about Christmas. And we as Christians especially should see the magic of this time of year. After all, when we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate something that would be totally unthinkable, totally impossible if it did not actually come true, that God became man. I'm convinced that this is one of those glorious mysteries that we will be looking into for all of eternity to see just what it means that God Almighty, everlasting, became a helpless baby. Of all the authors of the Old Testament, Isaiah probably saw this reality and spoke of this reality most clearly and was most stunned at what God was doing in history. That God would send a Redeemer and that this Redeemer would be both man and God. Isaiah saw the wonder of Christmas. And he saw that the wonder of Christmas was amazing because he saw what a terrible state that the world was in without the Messiah. And he saw what an incredible thing the Messiah would do when he would come. He saw that what God's plan was for the ages, what God's plan was to redeem mankind was almost literally too good to be true. And so as we go through these next four weeks, I want to try to highlight four big wonders of Christmas that Isaiah saw. That's what we're going to do for the next four weeks in the sermon series. And so this week, the wonder of Christmas that we're going to see is how utterly undeserving we were of the Savior coming. The, the state that we were in, the, the case that God had against us, and yet the fact that God still came to save us. This is the first and maybe the most spectacular wonder of Christmas. But then next week, we're going to look at the wonder of Christmas and the reality of who Jesus Christ is and the reality of Almighty God becoming mere man. Almost no one saw this difference between the glory and the power and the majesty of God and the smallness of man more than the prophet of Isaiah saw this reality. And yet Isaiah proclaimed that God would become man. And then in the third week, we're going to look and see how Christmas is amazing because of what it foreshadows about the work that Christ is going to do. Why was Jesus born? Why did Jesus have to become man? Well, again, Isaiah gives us a very clear answer to that question. God had to become man so that God himself could die for man as a substitute. Isaiah prophesies of that happening, of us being cleansed by the death of Jesus Christ. And then fourth and last, we see that Christmas is amazing because it means that all of God's promises in the Old Testament, all of God's promises about a king who will sit on David's throne forever and ever, whose kingdom will never pass away, to whom all the nations will come and worship and bow down, that all of those promises are finally coming true. That the ruler of the nations, the prince of peace, is finally here. Again, Isaiah saw all of this 
in his prophecy. And so that's what we're going to look at as we look at the wonder of Christmas over these next four weeks. But I think that all of this wonder is lost upon us if we do not first get a sense of our great need of Christmas, of our great need of the Savior. After all, if we think that we as human beings are somehow deserving of this, or that it's only natural that God would show this kind of mercy, well then Christmas is not going to seem all that amazing to us. And yet, if we can get a glimpse of just how sinful we are as human beings, of our great need of a Savior, and if we can also get a glimpse of the great holiness of God, how great and how powerful He is, well then all of a sudden, Christmas itself will be able to grow in wonder because it will be so entirely unexpected, so entirely undeserved and unanticipated. And yet God comes and He does it out of his sheer mercy. You see, we, even as Christians, can often make a mistake when we come to think of what God did in Jesus Christ for us. Our our minds often work to find some reason, some rationale for why God would send Jesus in order to save us. And as our minds do that work of figuring out why is it that God would save us, there really are two main paths that our minds go down to have this make sense to us. One path that our minds go down is the path that says, well, we must not really be all that bad. There must be something about us that is deserving, something about us that could possibly earn Jesus Christ coming. Otherwise, it wouldn't make sense, right, for God to send Jesus Christ. And yet, As we will see soon in Isaiah, this is the wrong path for our minds to go down. We do not have to be deserving in order for God to show his mercy to us. We are entirely undeserving. The other path that our minds often go down to have Christmas make sense to us, to have the work of God in Jesus Christ make sense to us, is we think that God's love just somehow means that he doesn't care all that much about sin, that he must just be a God who just kind of loves everyone regardless of what they do. And yet, again, we would be gravely mistaken to go down this path as well. God can be a God who is angry at sin, who does not accept sin, and yet he can still be the God who sends Jesus Christ to save us. And remarkably, when we can get our heads around just how undeserving we are, when we can get our heads around just how holy God is, far from that making us more fearful of God or less believing of the work that God has done, it leads us instead into enormous freedom because we realize that there is nothing that we could ever do to lose the love of God. If God already knew our sinfulness and if he was already as angry as he could be at our sin, and yet if he still chose to save us, then that means we are secure forever. Again, apart from anything that we have done, Apart from any change of attitude that God could have, God has set his love upon us forever. And so this morning, as we look into Isaiah, I want to look at the two great points that Isaiah makes. And he makes these points over and over, but we're just going to look at two texts, two great points that Isaiah makes in order to show us how helpless our condition is before God. The first reason 
Why we are helpless before God is because we are entirely sinful and unable to help ourselves. This is what we'll see in Isaiah 1, verses 2 to 8. And then the second reason why we are entirely helpless is because God is sovereign and he has no need of creation and all creation must answer to him. And that is what we will see in Isaiah 45, 15 to 25. So first, let us, let us begin in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 2 to 8, and see how these verses tell us that man truly is in dire straits, sinfully, and unable to save ourselves. So if you want to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 1, we're going to look at these verses together now. Isaiah begins his indictment of humanity and of Israel in particular with some words that, again, are not going to sound pleasant to our ears, but I believe that if we can receive them, will give us great freedom. Essentially, what Isaiah first wants to say to us and to Israel is that we as people are literally dumber than an ox. We are dumber than a donkey. This is what verses 2 and 3 say. So look at verses 2 and 3. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared up and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Beloved, this describes me. This describes you. This describes all of humanity. God has cared for us. He has provided to us. And he has also made his will for us clearly known. And yet, instead of responding in gratitude and showing love for God, we have acted like we do not even know him. We have rebelled against him, even though we are his children. And contrast that with an ox or with a donkey. Again, in verse 3, the ox knows its owner. And the donkey, its master's crib. But Israel, that is us as human beings, we do not know. We do not understand. We are literally dumber than an ox or a donkey. And I see this in my own life, day after day, week after week. And I pray that you can see this in your own life as well. That even though I have parts of my day where I see how good God has been and I am filled with the desire to serve Him and to please Him in every way, yet there's always some time in the day, usually for me it's later on in the day before I'm getting ready for bed at night, where suddenly it's like my brain just goes empty. And I just forget that I belong to the Lord and that I'm supposed to please him in every way. And suddenly my mind shifts and thinks only about how can I please myself now? Now I have time for me. Now I need to do something for me. All of a sudden, all of God's kindness, all of God's ownership over me doesn't matter anymore. And I just suddenly want to do only what makes sense in my own mind. Again, I'm worse than a donkey. I am worse than an ox. I forget that the Lord is my master and that he loves me and that he cares for me in every way. Even though I am his child who he has brought up, even though I have all the grace poured out on me that was poured out on me in Christ Jesus, still every day there are times of my day where I just seem to forget all of that. And I just seem to think that I'm going to be happier taking care of my own self, making my own decisions, going my own way. We are so blind, we are so stupid before 
God and His love and His mercy. Isaiah goes on to indict the people of God in verse 4. He says, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. In verse 4, Isaiah is pointing to the genetics of the people of Israel. Offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. All of Israel and indeed all of humanity are born to sinful people. My mother, my father were sinners. And when I was born, they did teach me many good things, but they also taught me to be a sinner. And so I am an offspring of evildoers. And so often, instead of keeping myself accountable to God alone and saying that I must be obedient to God alone in every way, I just want to measure myself against my parents. And I want to think, well, as long as I'm doing what my mother and father taught me, I must be okay. And yet I don't realize that I myself am the offspring of evildoers. I am a child who deals corruptly that the standards of mankind, the standards of my own parents are not the same as God's standards. They are not the highest standards. All of humanity is fallen. And so any other person that I look to to say, oh, well, I'm good enough because I'm like that person or I'm good enough because I'm like that person, it will not satisfy. It will not suffice. I am a sinner through and through. And so, rather than determining to be different and to follow God far and above every other human being, I simply content myself to follow in the path of my parents, to follow in the path of generations gone before me. And so, I myself am part of this sinful nation, part of this people laden with iniquity, part of this offspring of evildoers, these children who act corruptly. Beloved, it is not enough for us just to be like the world around us, just to be a little bit better than the average American. No, we are called to serve the Lord and Him only. We must be dramatically different. Then, in verses 5 and 6, Isaiah tells us about how complete our fallen condition is. He says, Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Again, the image of sickness is given to us as a picture of sin itself. And notice how deep the sickness is in verse 5. The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. In other words, this sickness of sin has taken over our entire bodies. Now this does not mean that there is nothing good that we can ever do. Of course, we can look at the world around us and we see that believers and unbelievers alike seem to do many good things, acts of generosity and kindness. And so it is possible for us, even though our whole selves are overtaken by sin, it is possible for us to do good 
But what this does mean is that even those good things that we do are tainted with our selfish and sinful motives. That every good act that we do, every act of generosity or caring for others, somewhere in the back of our minds lies this motive of, oh, now maybe others will think well of me. Or, oh, now maybe I am better than somebody else. Or, oh, now maybe this person will owe me. And so even in these good actions that we do, we have these ulterior motives that taint Even the the goodness that we do, again, our sinfulness, our sickness, is from the sole of our foot all the way to our head. And so there is no purity within us. The fact that our sickness is so complete also means that there is no way that we can cure ourselves. The second half of verse 6 says, Bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. There is no part of our body that is still healthy enough that could possibly be a source of regeneration or health to us. There is no way that we will have the resources within ourselves. There is no self-help book. There is no strategy. There is no motive that we can go to within ourselves to say that by this, I will be able to overcome this sinful nature that I have, these selfish desires that I have. No, our sickness is so total that it is a critical condition. We are on our deathbeds, as it were, when it comes to our sinfulness. And so as a result, the closing of verses 7 and 8 give us a physical picture of our inward spiritual condition. Verse 7 says, Your country lies desolate, your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners, as the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Now, I do believe that when Isaiah wrote these verses, he was talking in part of what the cities of Israel were already like, even though even more destruction was to come. But it's important to see that the cities of Israel were only like this because of the spiritual condition that they already had. These besieged cities, these things that were falling apart, these foreigners devouring their land, all of these things were simply the result of their hearts being corrupt and them turning away from God. In other words, the devastation of their land was the outward manifestation of the inward reality, of the inward devastation that they already knew spiritually. Now this applies, on the one hand, to our land itself. When I read the news today and I see tragic things happening in our country, to me, the, the true tragedy is not so much the events themselves, but what all of these things reveal about the deeper spiritual condition of our country. When the people of our nation largely turn away from the Lord and turn to their own selfish desires, we should not be surprised when bad things happen in our nation. When our nation seems to be divided and going downhill. All of this division, all of this destruction around us, this pestilence that will not seem to leave is simply the outward manifestation of the inward spiritual condition of our nation. And beloved, the same is true in our own individual hearts and lives. 
In verse 8, Isaiah gives the potent picture of a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field. Now these booths and vineyards and lodge and cucumber fields, these are basically little shacks that would be set up during the summer months when agricultural workers would come in to take care of the vineyard, to take care of the cucumber fields, and they would, of course, want a little shade from the heat of the sun during the day, and so they would just piece together some sort of shelter so that they could have a little shade. But then, after the summer months were over, they would leave and they would go on to their next job, and these Lodges in the cucumber fields, these booths and vineyards would simply be left to fall apart. They were simply momentary shelters. They were not meant to be permanent dwellings. And so for us individually, we have to ask, how are we taking care of our own souls? How are we attending to spiritual things? Are we treating our spiritual matters as like they are just a booth in a vineyard? like a lodge in a cucumber field. We're just trying to set something up just so we can kind of get through, just to give us enough comfort for our lives so that we can make it through the day or through the week. Or do we see that we need much more spiritual renovation and spiritual work than simply to have a booth in a vineyard or a lodge in a cucumber field? Beloved, we will reap what we sow, as the scriptures tell us. And so if we only put enough time into our walk with the Lord so as to build this booth in a vineyard or lodge in a cucumber field, then we will be like this besieged city that Isaiah talks about. We will be like this ravaged nation burned with fire. And yet, if we will devote ourselves to the Lord, if we will set him first, if we will recognize our spiritual condition and our spiritual need, If we will draw near to the Lord, then he will draw near to us. And we will not be like this ravaged nation. We will not be like a mere booth in a vineyard or a lodge in a cucumber field like a besieged city. Rather, we will be a strong city, sheltered and able to be protected. And so all of humanity, God's people included, before the coming of Jesus was in this condition. All of humanity was like this besieged city, was like a country that lies desolate. We're like a people who were sick from head to toe. We're these children of evildoers who had no other place to learn righteousness and were dumber than oxen and donkeys. Isaiah truly saw the darkness of the world. In the New Testament, in Romans 3, we are reminded that this is the condition of all mankind. In Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9, the Apostle Paul asked the question, what then, are we Jews any better off? When he says, are we Jews better off? He's saying as compared to Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles made up all the people on the earth. And so he says, are we Jews any better off? Are the people who received the word of God any better off than people who did not receive the word of God? He says, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Beloved, when God 
sent Jesus Christ. He did not send Jesus Christ because there was a good person on the earth, because we had done anything right. All of humanity was utterly sinful before God. It was a desolate country, and yet God had mercy on it. God makes clear that it is right for him to include everyone under this judgment because he has made his will known to all. And so in Romans 1, verses 19 to 23, it says, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You see, God indeed made his will known to all creation, and that's why they are without excuse. But even though they knew God, they did not honor him. They traded what their eyes could see. Images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, those are the things they went after rather than pursuing the invisible God. And therefore, all of the earth is indeed accountable before God. Now, all of this would be bad enough and would show us our need for salvation well enough. But Isaiah sees something else very clearly that makes our condition before God even more desperate than this, a condition that should cause us to tremble. And so now if you'll turn to Isaiah 45, we're going to look at verses 15 to 25. I first want to look at verses 18 and 19, which describe for us the absolute right of God over humanity. The absolute right of God over humanity in verses 18 and 19. It says, For thus says the Lord. Now when you see Lord in all caps, you know that's the Lord's personal name, Yahweh. For thus says Yahweh, who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, Yahweh, speak the truth. I declare what is right. These two verses tell us two great truths. First, we see that God himself is the maker of everything, that he is the only true God. Again, look at verse 18. Thus says Yahweh, who created the heavens, he is God. So there is no other God beside him. You see, it would be one thing if we had this sinful condition and yet there were some other God that we could appeal to. Maybe some God that would accept us in our sinfulness, who wouldn't make us change, who wouldn't condemn us. And yet there is no other God. There is only one God who made the heavens and the earth. As verse 18 says, who formed the earth and made it and he established it. 
He formed it to be inhabited. And then that last line of verse 18 emphasizes the point once again. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. And there is no other. In other words, in the midst of our sinfulness, there is no one else who we can appeal to for help or for mercy. God himself is the only Lord. He is the only God. That means that if we are guilty before him, then we are guilty before all. We are absolutely guilty. There is no other standard by which we can be measured. God has absolute right over all humanity. And verse 19 reminds us again that God has spoken and has made his will known. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. So God has made known to us his will. And even though he has made this known to us again, we have not obeyed him. And therefore we stand guilty before the only Lord of heaven and earth. Now from this perspective, the statements of 15 to 17 and 20 to 21 make more sense. So look at the first half of verse 20 now. He says, assemble yourselves and come, draw near together, you survivors of nations. So because God is the only Lord, he is able to call all the peoples of the earth to assemble themselves before him. Because he is Lord of all, all the nations come and they give an account to him. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. So all the nations are coming to give an account before God. This God calls us to assemble before him because we are accountable to him. Verse, the second half of verse 20, it says, They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and Savior. There is none besides me. Notice the end of verse 20, we see that the nations are trusting in these wooden idols. And what does God say about these wooden idols? But he says that they cannot save. Again, beloved, we are sinful before God and there is no other God we can turn to. There is no other helper that we can find. We can find wooden idols. We can create any other God we like, but these other gods cannot save. We are doomed apart from the Lord himself. Verse 16 of Isaiah 45 has the same message. It says, all of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. You see, in the ancient world, they were very clever at making idols. They were very clever at coming up with gods. And yet Isaiah said that no matter what God they could come up with, none of these gods could help to save them. Beloved, we in our own day are no less clever at devising other gods. In many respects, we have more reason to trust in the works of our own hands than the people in these ancient times. And therefore, many people trust in the work of our own hands more and more. We trust in idols because we think that they can save But as Isaiah 45 is making clear, there is no other God that can save. There is no idol that can 
deliver. And then verses 21 and 17 tell us the flip side of this truth that an idol cannot deliver. He says, declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and Savior. There is none besides me. So anytime you have a question in your mind of whether you should trust in anything besides the Lord, you never need to go through a thought process of asking yourself, well, how trustworthy is this other thing? How worthy of my trust is this other thing? You never need to ask those sort of questions because there is one universal truth, and that is that there is only one God who is trustworthy, and that is Yahweh himself, the Lord who sits on high. He is the only righteous God and Savior. The rest of chapter 45 is a reflection on this reality. Isaiah wants to remind us of this again and again. So beginning in verse 22, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in Yahweh it shall be said of me our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In Yahweh all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Beloved, there is only one name to which all the earth will bow. There is only one name that will give us justification and that will give us glory. It is God himself. And so we can see how desperate the human condition was before the coming of Jesus Christ. All of humanity was mired in this sinfulness, and yet God was the only Lord and the only one able to help. And before the coming of Jesus, God had not shown himself very helpful. Indeed, what he had done in large part was simply to reveal to humanity more and more their own sinfulness and their own helplessness, destroying their pride more and more. And so the result of these two realities coming together is what Isaiah describes as utter darkness, as a land that lies in desolation. If mankind were lost in sin and yet happily lost in sin, then perhaps our situation wouldn't be so bad. But we can never be happily lost in sin when we must finally give an account to God. We will always live in fear as long as we have sin in our lives and we know that we must give an account to God. On the other hand, if we give an account to God and yet we were not hopelessly mired in sin, then again our condition would not be so bad. Maybe we could fix ourselves before we have to give an account and therefore we would be okay. But as it stands, there would be no way of salvation open to people of that day. Both the way to the city and the way to the country is blocked. The way to God is blocked. The way to happiness in sin is blocked. There is no salvation. There is no happiness. There is no joy whatsoever. They have nowhere to go. This 
is the situation into which Christ Jesus came. And I know that my mind often forms objections against God being against all humanity in this way. I so often want to think, well, surely God would not condemn generations of people to misery with no hope of salvation. And because my mind often thinks this, I often temper my thoughts of God's judgment. I think, well, yes, God is a righteous and wrathful judge, but he's also very kind and loving. Surely it won't be that bad for those people. But beloved, God's wrath is not opposed to his love. God's wrath, his judgment is actually owing to his love. His love of all that is good and right, both in himself and in those who have come to be called by his name. You cannot say that you love something and also love its opposite. You cannot say that you love your child, but also love the thing that harms, that ravages your child. You cannot say that you love the truth and yet also love the lie that makes the truth look foolish. To love one thing is to fight against another. So when we want to think, well, surely God would not condemn generations of people to misery with no hope of salvation, we must remember that this is just the sentimentality of man talking. It is not the ferocious love of God. We can answer this objection about God holding all of humanity to account in two different ways, both from the perspective of human responsibility and from the perspective of divine sovereignty. In terms of human responsibility, we must remember that it was not God that condemned humanity, that condemned any generation to misery with no hope of salvation. Indeed, God never condemned any individual to misery with no hope of salvation. Rather, this has always been mankind's choice. Mankind chooses to live in sin, even though they know it is wrong. And you might respond, well, why would mankind be so foolish? If only they knew that what what they were doing is wrong and would bring judgment, then surely they would not do it. But beloved, this is the mystery of all of human history and even of the sin in our own lives. We know that sin is wrong. We know that sin brings upon judgment. So why do we continue to sin? It truly is irrational. There is no benefit in it. And yet we do it, I do it, you do it over and over willfully. And therefore we cannot blame God or say that there is wrong on God's part for condemning sinners for their sin. They know that they are bringing condemnation upon themselves, and yet they willingly do it. And so God is simply giving them over to their own choice, to their own desires. But there is a second way in which we can answer this objection of all humanity being in darkness and being accountable to God, and that is from the perspective of God's sovereignty. And from the stance of God's sovereignty, We answer with Isaiah, can what is molded say to its maker, what have you done? Beloved, God is the creator and we are created. As Isaiah himself says, his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. 
Just because we could not find the justice in something does not thereby mean that there is no justice in something. Alvin Plantica, a great philosopher, has this wonderful illustration of noceums. He says, suppose I ask you to look in a tent and tell me if there's a St. Bernard inside. In this case, I have every reason to trust what you say, since a St. Bernard is just the sort of thing I would expect you to be able to observe inside a tent. But suppose I ask you to look inside and tell me if there are any noceums inside the tent. Apparently, a, a noceum is a gnat with a big bite that is small enough to pass through the netting of a tent, and so it's too small to see. Now, I have no reason to trust your answer in this case, since you can't see no seams. Here's the problem. You're assuming that if there is a reason for God holding all humanity accountable, that it's more like a St. Bernard than it is like a no seam. But this is simply assumed. It's not argued for. And it's certainly at least possible that we suffer, that we are all accountable to God for a reason. But that reason is not something that we can easily detect. And so, beloved, it was indeed the case before the coming of Jesus Christ that just as Isaiah says, that all of humanity was under God's wrath because they were locked in sinful patterns that they could not deliver themselves from. And there was no other God that they could appeal to because there is only one God and one Lord. Humanity was truly in darkness. And so, beloved, what changed at the coming of Jesus Christ? Well, beloved, when Jesus Christ came, this only God, this only Savior, extended his hand to save. Jesus himself bore our sickness so that we could be healed. He bore our desolation so that we ourselves could be built up into a strong city. He healed all of our wounds. And so, beloved, that's why when we come to this Christmas season, we come with enormous and overflowing joy. Because the one problem that humanity could not solve, the problem of death itself, the punishment for our sins, has now been overcome in Jesus Christ our Lord. That if we trust in him, even though we are totally undeserving, even though God is over all and has no obligation to help us whatsoever, nevertheless, he came to help us. And so we trust in him and we rejoice in him and we rejoice with all of our might as we celebrate the wonder of Christmas. Would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we thank you that even though we were indeed in darkness, even though we were indeed under your wrath, rightfully so, that nevertheless you sent your Son to die for us. God, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We are in awe, Lord, that even though there is nothing good in us, and even though you are the Lord of all and did not have to help us, yet you did. So we thank you for your Son. And we thank you for the deliverance that you have given through him. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.